Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Robert. Uh, can I call you Bob Litterman? Yeah, Bob. And uh, glad to have you here. I hope you're doing okay. I'm doing well, thanks. So I saw you speak a little while ago and uh, at Columbia University, and you were actually introduced by Gurnett, who, oh, he hasn't been on the podcast yet, but he's he and I are friends and we've had coffee. Uh, but Mark Turchek has been on the podcast, and I believe that he and you work together. You, I think of you now as the chairman, the founding partner at Kipos Capital, but I also know that you worked for 23 years at Goldman Sachs, where you did right. research and risk management. And you worked with, I mean, I think of the Black-Scholes equation. So you worked with with Black. And I think that means that when you think of the environment, we should let the market do its workings and unfettered and just let it figure things out and allocate resources optimally to solve the, the our environmental issues without any change. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> well... No, I mean, it's close. Uh, how's that? Um, but, uh, well, first of all, uh, you know, economists, and I'm an economist, uh, I was one of the early quants on Wall Street. So uh, along with Fisher Black, and uh, we, we had a lot of great problems uh, to solve. But, uh, but uh, one of the things that economists always talk about is that there are externalities, uh, and the free market alone can't solve those. Uh, in some cases, there are market solutions. Uh, but in the case of, for example, uh, global warming, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a problem that everyone, uh, everywhere is exposed to the pollution from anywhere else. And so you've got a global externality. And there's no way that the market can solve that without uh, a governmental solution. And what makes it so hard in this case, of course, is that, you know, we don't have global governance. Uh, and, you know, and they've been trying in the context of the United Nations to solve this problem for decades and frankly haven't made much progress. And uh, so, so that's where we're at. Now, uh, when you talk about the market, though, uh, you know, I'd like to come back to that because one of the things that one observes on Wall Street is how uh, capital flows and where it flows. I mean, that's what Wall Street is all about, is facilitating the flow of capital. And uh, one of the things that I worked on uh, early on when I was a quant on Wall Street was an asset allocation model. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I worked with Fisher Black on that. So it's kind of, it's known as the Black Litterman model. And, and what the problem we were trying to solve was the fact that when you build a mathematical model to allocate capital, it's very sensitive to the inputs, to the expected returns. So you change the expected returns by what are called basis points, just a few basis points. Those are hundredths of a percent. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the allocation of capital flips around dramatically. That was the problem that we were trying to solve. And so the point I would make is that, yes, the allocation of capital is very sensitive to expectations of returns. And that's something that 
is very, you know, when you work on Wall Street and you see how that works, mm -hmm. and then you say to yourself, okay, we've got uh, a problem here. We've got the wrong capital infrastructure for the future. We need low carbon energy and low carbon uh, capital, low carbon infrastructure, buildings, et cetera, automobiles. How are we going to get there? And we have to get there quickly. And it's all about trillions of dollars of capital flowing in the right direction, which is to say in the direction of low carbon. And so what's going to cause that capital to flow? Well, it's expected returns. I mean, it's a few basis points is going to cause huge amounts of capital to flow in one direction versus another. And so, uh, you know, I would say uh, there are lessons from being uh, in a position to observe how Wall Street works. And those lessons are particularly relevant when we talk about climate change and protecting the environment. So I am applying the knowledge, and it is kind of a specialized knowledge uh, that I gained on Wall Street about what causes capital to flow. So when you talk about a carbon, a carbon tax, you're not like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. You've really gone into this in depth and understood it. I mean, you've and, and you're not coming at this like um, a do-gooder. And <laughs> no, I'm, I'm coming at this like a mathematician. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, before getting into the carbon tax and, and remedies, the the transition from Goldman Sachs partner for 23 years to a uh, proponent of a carbon tax, is that should that be obvious to people or it feels like it's probably surprising to a lot of people? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't it's not it shouldn't be obvious. And uh, but it's a pretty simple for me story to tell. Yeah, do you Which mind is, yeah, no, not at all. I I was in the process of retiring from Goldman, and uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. And one of my partners invited me to lunch. And uh, now he was very uh, involved in environmental causes. He was at the time uh, the chairman of the World Wildlife Fund and also on the board of Resources for the Future and, you know, just very involved in environmental issues. And he asked me if I was interested in the environment. And I kind of uh, smile when I think about it. I, I My answer was, well, I could be. <laughs> I hadn't been. Let's put it that way. It's not like I read nature books or uh, spent a lot of time birding or anything along those lines. I was your average quant. Uh, and... Uh, but I had, I, and I mentioned this, you know, uh, my undergraduate major had been at Stanford in what at the time was a brand new program in human biology. Mm -hmm. And I guess just to share my age, that, that program, you know, I graduated 50 years ago. So it was a while ago, but it was a very popular program, brand new and attracted a third of my class. And, uh, I guess it shaped my view of the environment in the sense that I recognized right from the get-go that we humans are part of, you know, nature. We're just, you know, along with every other bit of nature, part of life on this planet. 
And uh, that's how I've always thought about humans, thought about myself. Uh, now, we're a little different, obviously, in the sense that we have language that's well-developed. We have history, knowledge, you know. We like to think of ourselves as a completely different type of uh, species or whatever. But, you know, we're not. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the things that I remember from studying human biology is that it, not just people, but, it, you know, all animals uh, respond to incentives. That's what incentives are. Incentives are things that change behavior. And so if you want to understand human behavior, and that's kind of what I was thinking at the time, I'd like to understand human behavior then the answer is you have to understand incentives and, uh, you know, psychology as well. I, I thought maybe I would uh, go into psychology, but ultimately I got into economics. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I, I got a PhD in it. Uh, I thought I was going to be a, a career economist. Actually, I worked at the Fed in Minneapolis for five years. Uh, and, uh, and then I got a call on Wall Street and, and went to Wall Street. So that's, that's how I got there. But when, when Larry said to me, you know, uh, are you interested in the environment? I said, uh, yeah, I could be. And, and, you know, what seems to me is kind of crazy is that, you know, we're heating up the planet and, uh, you know, at Goldman, my job at, you know, one point I was head of risk management for the firm. And, uh, you know, I, I got kind of a reputation as being focused on risk management. Well, you know, that asset allocation problem was balancing risk and return. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of what my career was all about, risk, return. And climate change is one of those things where you look at it, uh, I guess, a little bit from a distance and you say to yourself, that doesn't make any sense. We're, you know, we're creating all this risk. For what reason? Uh, and so I said to Larry, you know, uh, climate change is pretty obvious. What we have to do is we have to price the risk. We're not pricing the risk. And if you don't price the risk, you know, uh, you take too much risk. I mean, if, if that's what asset allocation is all about is mispriced risk. Can, if, I, ask about a, the, can I ask about a middle step there? Sure. Because- well, there's two things I'm curious about. What did you think about the environment? Or, I mean, if you got your undergrad degree in human biology while you were at Goldman Sachs, is it something you thought about? It was something in the background? Is it something that I'm curious your thoughts on the environment and human biology then? And then also, how did you go from just knowing about the environment to seeing it as a pricing risk issue? I mean, did, how much did you study it? Well, yeah. I mean, so let's take the first one. It was just in the background there. You know, it was like, well, clearly, uh, you know, we've got to slow down the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. I hope they get this right. You know, and there's all these people working on it. I just assumed that, you know, those institutions would would work. They'd fix it. I, I guess they'd, they'd uh -huh. fix it. They'd get, you know, they'd get on it. It's like we worked on uh uh, acid rain. We worked on those uh, fluorocarbons that were destroying the ozone, ozone layer. Yeah. yeah, you know, I assumed they would get carbon dioxide, and in some sense, you know, I, I still assume we'll get it. It's just, it's just we let it go way too late, 
And that was kind of, you know, uh, so, you know, when Larry started asking me about, you know, how do I think about the environment? I immediately kind of said, well, you know, it looks like we're putting it at risk. And, and, you know, as a risk management guy, you always think about these things in terms of risk. And, and in fact, also you think about them in terms of pricing risk. I guess that's the other thing that just to me comes very naturally. To most people, you'd say, oh, as a risk manager, you've got to minimize risk. You've got to eliminate risk. That's actually not what it's all about. It's about pricing risk because, you know, that's what at Goldman Sachs, that's how we made money. We priced risk. And when it was mispriced, that was an opportunity. If it was, you know, uh, the price was too low, uh, then you certainly didn't want to take that risk in the sense that you weren't getting paid enough for it. If you were getting paid plenty, then that's a risk you want to take. And, so uh, you know, it really didn't take long for you. I mean, you could just look at it and very quickly say, we, we have a risk. It's not priced. We're not pricing it. That's a, that's a basic problem. And then Larry says to me, well, Bob, that's a brilliant insight for an economist. But you know what? One of the problems is no one has a clue where to price it. Mm-hmm. And I, I took that as a challenge. That's really what. Yeah. You, so you're just like red flag in front of you, of course. Yeah. It was uh-huh. like, wait a minute. I'm an economist. I can at least read the literature. I've never read it. You know, I don't know anything about it, but don't tell me no one knows. I mean, that's a problem. Come on. You know, someone must know. And so I started digging into it. Uh, And in fact, I kind of knew that one of my old friends, uh, this guy, Bill Nordhaus, uh, uh, you know, a Yale economist who 30 years ago had, had focused on this issue, which in the economics literature, it's called what, you know, the social cost of carbon, uh, the SCC. Uh, what is it? And uh, so Larry kind of challenged me and I, I started reading the literature, starting with uh, Bill's work. And, you know, I discovered that, first of all, Larry was kind of right. Uh, and to summarize it, there was a box in one of the IPCC reports. I think it was the fifth or the fourth and it talked about the social cost of carbon. And it said, you know, the economists haven't been very helpful because they have estimates of the social cost of carbon that range from $2 a ton to $200 a ton. <laughs> and that's not very helpful. And I thought, oh, my God, that, uh, that can't be, you know, we got to do better than that. And, uh, and I started working on this problem. Uh, one of the early papers I read uh, was written by two economists uh, at Harvard, Larry Summers and uh, Dick Zeckhauser. Uh, and I, I knew Larry pretty well. I was uh, actually an MIT economist for two years, uh, right out of graduate school, and uh, had an office next to Larry. Uh, so anyway, I, you know, and their paper, they said, well, it, you know, uh, the the right price for emissions actually depends on a correlation that's hard to determine. And, you know, only an economist would start talking about correlations. <laughs> and, but, you know, I'm an economist, so I got it. Uh-huh. And it's like, wow, you mean that depending on a correlation, more risk could actually reduce the right price for carbon emissions? And and I tell you the answer, uh, you know, I hope I can explain the intuition to you, which is that, well, if uh, the economy is really doing well and growing strongly, there's going to be more emissions. 
and that's going to create more climate damage. But if the economy grows weakly, you know, slowly over the next whatever, 50 years, there'll be less pollution and therefore less climate related damages. And so actually, you could think of these climate damages as a hedge against strong or weak growth. That's the correlation. Uh, Do these damages occur when times are good or when times are bad? And so one assumption, a natural assumption for a macroeconomist to make, is that when times are good, you have more pollution and therefore more damages. And so it's actually kind of a hedge against bad economic times when you have less pollution and less damage. And so the full distribution of outcomes becomes, uh, you know, smaller. And, and therefore, you actually don't mind this pollution. <laughs> so that was the uh, the kind of correlation story. And I just thought, whoa, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. And but but it is a good lesson, because what it tells you is, we're not really worried about small damages. One of the things economists all tended to do is to assume that climate damages would be relatively small. And so, you know, relative to the uncertainty about how strong economic growth is going to be on the next, you know, 30 years, uh, you know, climate damages in 2050 are not going to be that bad. And therefore, the correlation uh, that you know, I just talked about means that you don't worry about it. And the price goes, you know, in the direction of reducing the price. Uh, now, that is bigger climate damages actually mean a lower price because they hedge more of the economic risk. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so, but to me, the insight that that came from thinking about that correlation is that what you're really worried about is just catastrophic climate risk. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, is it going to be 2% of GDP or 4% of GDP? It's going to be, you know, are you destroying the planet? And the problem is we could be. We don't really know. You know, we've never done this experiment. And it's clearly an experiment. And it's a stupid experiment. You know, mm-hmm. We didn't have to do it. And the other thing that I'll tell you that most people don't realize, but when you start digging into it, you quickly realize is that most of the damage that's been done has been done in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's not something that goes back 500 years. I mean, obviously industrialization goes back a long way, but in terms of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the amount of damage being done, it shouldn't have been a problem. If, if, we had addressed it 20 years ago or 30 years ago when we knew it, then it wouldn't be a threat to the planet. But as it is, we didn't. And every day that goes by is another, you know, potential going off the cliff. We just don't know. And, you know, one of the things that you learn when you're in risk management, particularly on Wall Street, because we took and hopefully take risk management seriously. There's a lot of risk there to manage, as you know, as, as we've all seen. In any case, uh, time is a scarce resource. You don't have a lot of time. You never know how much time you have. And so, when you're managing risk, you don't waste time. You know, you don't. 
you don't come to the management committee and say, uh, we've got a risk management problem. And they say, uh, all right, well, we'll schedule that for next week. A risk <laughs> management problem is a problem that you address immediately. And, you know, when I was head of risk management at Goldman Sachs, that accrued to my benefit. <laughs> I had the risk card. And, uh, you know, and we we tried to take it very seriously. And, you know, uh, the issue here is we don't know how much time we have. And every day that goes by that we don't price this risk, we create much too much risk. And uh, And that's been going on for decades. And it continues to go on. Because we're not pricing the risk. We're not creating the incentives that will cause people to change their behavior. And, you know, it goes back to human biology. It goes back to incentives. We don't have those incentives in place. And so, yeah, it drives me crazy. When I started thinking about this problem and, you know, okay, where do you price it? And then, okay, it's really catastrophic risk that we're worried about. And, you know, what do we know about that catastrophic risk? Well, we know nothing because we've never done this experiment, except that we know that we're doing an experiment that's going way outside the bounds of anything that we've done. We can, you know, we can look back uh, hundreds of millions of years and see, you know, how, how has the Earth responded in the past when there have been experiments like this? And the answer is it hasn't done well. You know, it's not something that's going to grow to the benefit of humans or, you know, other species that are adapted, very well adapted to the environment that has been very stable for, you know, thousands of years. And uh, and the rate of change that we're creating is just, you know, unprecedented. And it's just, well, you know, the science tells us it's just getting started and it's going to accelerate. So you're, I, th- I forget what you said, frustrated or it's like to you baffling that we don't just tackle this because it's so clear cut. It's so, and you're not like uh, talking about like, let's say the polar bears, although that might be a nice effect, but it's just, we have a clear, very high chance of catastrophic failure. We know that and we don't have a lot of time. We, we, we don't know how much time, but it's not like a century. And no, we don't know how much time. It may be too late. You know, let's be honest. It, it is too late in an important sense. We are going to destroy a lot of nature. That's just baked in already. It well, we've already destroyed a lot of nature. Yeah. It, we, yeah. It, the climate's already changed. And, and yes, we've destroyed a lot of nature through other things that we've done, but nothing compared to this. And it's it's so clear that... We're not pricing things. So a market in which things are not accurately priced, firms that should go out of business are going to stay in business. And firms that should do well are going to go out of business. And I mean, if a business ran the way that humanity is running itself now, that business would have been out of business some time ago. It, yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do people <laughs> in your old world react to you? Do they... Do they I mean, does it make sense to them? How? how yeah, would... well, uh, okay. So when you say my old world, you mean Wall Street. And yeah. I, I take it. In, in finance. And, you know, there, is, there has been a fundamental change 
on Wall Street that we all should recognize. Uh, at Goldman Sachs, you mentioned Mark Tursek. Well, when he was head of sustainability or whatever they you know had the title at the time, he was like a one man show. And yeah, he, his heart was in the right place. And I think he was in the executive office, but you know, there wasn't a lot of staff working on sustainability. And I guarantee you right now, there are thousands of people at Goldman Sachs who think that sustainability is, you know, a very important part of what they do. Every, every research piece that comes out of Goldman Sachs talks about what this company is, you know, what's its uh, sustainability policy? You know, has it, is it net zero? What's its plan? Uh, you know, and so many of the new companies that you see in the venture space, uh, you know, are looking for, uh, low carbon solutions now. Uh, you know, they, they just stood up, uh, something at the Dewar School, uh, at, at Stanford, the Dewar School of Sustainability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a venture guy who made his money in computers. Uh, but, you know, the, the new computer science is sustainability science. This is where the planet is going. And that's very exciting. It's, it's nice that everyone sees that. But the problem is we haven't yet put a price on, you know, it, there's a contradiction there. Everyone says we're going to net zero. Everyone sees that the future is low carbon. And yet we haven't in this country put a price on it. Now, it's important to recognize this is a global problem, and it's important to recognize where we are in that, I'll call it transition to to net zero. Uh, The U.S. has not started. Europe is way ahead of us. Well, I'm I'm being a little bit harsh in the sense that the U.S. has reduced its emissions dramatically, uh, you know, since they peaked in around 2007, I think, Uh, but not enough. And and Europe, and has, a lot of that's outsourcing. It's yeah, a lot of that is outsourcing the uh, manufacturing to China and other places. So you know, but but some of it, a lot of it is economics too. The, the uh, price of natural gas, uh, in in part because of fracking, has gone down, and so you know we're using a lot less coal. Well, I, th- I think also in in politics, people want to talk about we have to grow, grow, grow. And yeah, did the has DC gotten the message that Goldman Sachs has gotten? Because I, I feel like no, no, no. I mean, yes, uh, everyone. So let me finish. Everyone, all these companies, including Goldman Sachs, they know we're going to net zero. But the question is, how do we get there? And uh, you know, so there's a lot of these venture companies that are getting stood up, uh, but the amount of capital. Flowing is not what it needs to be. You know, uh, the estimates are that we need something like three to four trillion dollars of additional capital flowing into the low carbon infrastructure. And, you know, that the, the zeros here are important trillions. You know, the IRA, the biggest, uh, you know, uh, uh, government effort is measured as 370 or something tri- uh, billion. And, and that's over 10 years. So, I mean, Goldman thinks it's going to be much bigger than that, by the way. They think it's going to be a trillion over 10 years. But uh, whatever it is, it's a drop in the bucket relative to what we need. And what's missing are the expectations that 
people are going to get paid for having low carbon, uh, you know, infrastructure, low carbon uh, vehicles, low carbon, you know, well insulated houses. People are not incented to reduce their emissions because we haven't put a price on it. And the only caveat to that is that what's important is expectations of the future incentives. If everyone knew that we're going to put a price on it in five years, we'd all be getting ready for that. But there's a lot of uncertainty about when, if and when, the U.S. is going to put an incentive in place. And I I use the word incentive carefully here because, you know, people think, well, what do you mean by incentive? Are you talking about a carbon tax? And it could be a carbon tax. But in the world today, the incentives come in a lot of different forms, and carbon taxes are the least important. The most important are fossil fuel taxes, gasoline taxes. So in this country, we do have gasoline taxes. They weren't in, put in place in order to reduce emissions. I'm not saying that. But today, if you have a choice between uh, buying an electric vehicle and buying an internal combustion vehicle, the gasoline tax is an incentive to buy the electric vehicle, the, the cost of operation, uh, the electricity is going to be much less than the gasoline, and that gasoline tax makes it just that much more expensive. Now, that's a tiny incentive. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny incentive, but that's that's 90% of the incentive that we have in the U.S. today. We have some other little ones like feed-in tariffs in various different states and low-carbon fuel standards. And, uh, you know, the Reggie uh, cap and trade system in East Coast states and the California has a cap and trade system. And now Washington state just recently put on a cap and trade system. So we have a few of these, but there are only a few. They only apply in a couple of states. And so at the end of the day, the biggest incentive in the U.S., which is tiny, is a gasoline tax. They have strong incentives in Europe. They have a, a strong uh, emission trading system as well as uh, gasoline taxes, diesel taxes. And, uh, you know, now uh, they're putting on a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is a, a form of a tariff mm-hmm. on imports that don't have uh, taxes. And, uh, and other things are being done in the U.S., they're talking about carbon border adjustment mechanisms, both Republicans and Democrats. So you never know. We might be able to get something there. And, uh, you know, there could be a carbon tax. Uh, there's a lot of support from Democrats. That's not a problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is getting support from Republicans. And there's a few like Mitt Romney who will come out and absolutely say we need uh, a carbon tax. That's, uh, you know, the right thing to do. Uh, I, you know, I was asked to testify to the Senate Budget Committee a couple of months ago. Uh, Senator Whitehouse, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's, you know, the leading, uh, climate, uh, hawk on, uh, on Capitol Hill. He's been giving speeches for years on climate. And now, uh, as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, he's again holding hearings. Uh, I was asked to testify along with two others. Uh, one of whom was uh, a Republican witness, Douglas Holtz Eakin, uh, and then also Mark Carney. All three of us agreed and, and said, you know, of course, you know, you need to put a price on carbon. You need incentives. Uh, there's no disagreement, and not even from the Republican witness. 
So, you know, economists get this. It's kind of like simple, you know, matter of science. And, uh, you know, we, we need to do it. Now, another approach that's going on, and I, I think it's, you know, maybe the one that will be most successful is uh, what are called nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions. Uh, basically, uh, these are things like uh, growing trees or managing forests more, you know, efficiently to store carbon or, or storing carbon in agricultural. Regenerative agriculture. Uh, lands, regenerative agriculture, you know, uh, or rangeland, the way, you know, you manage your, your pastures. So these are things that can be scaled. And if you put a price on it, if you said, I'll pay you $20 a ton, uh, you know, you could scale, you could get a lot of carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere uh, today. And now over time, that's not going to be enough. We actually have to, you know, use engineered solutions, uh, direct air capture. The scale of the problem is immense. If possible. Yeah. We hope that it'll work out. We hope. You never know. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about the future. A lot of it depends on the cost of energy. Ultimately, pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere requires energy. And, uh, you know, if we if we get uh, fusion or something that's going to create, you know, uh, continued uh, declines in the cost of renewable energy, I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, maybe we'll get lucky. But, you know, luck is not a risk management strategy. Uh-huh. And meanwhile, we're wasting time and we're not pricing the risk. And, you know, uh, this is just crazy. So you describe it as, as uh, pricing the risk and, and providing incentives. To me, the way I usually put it is accounting, that if if you have a business and the sales team racks up huge, uh, uses up a lot of money, and then I, and then I, but then I say those costs came from the engineering department, I'm not going to, I'm not going to know how to run my company. I'm going to, I'm, and yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, there's a whole group. I mean, it, this gets a little bit into the weeds, but uh, you know, there's, there's groups at Stanford and Harvard in the accounting departments that talk about, you know, e-liabilities, emissions liabilities. And, and the obvious point is that if you emit a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere, you have a liability. You should pull it back out. If we're all getting to net zero, that's what we need to do. Now, uh, a lot of companies, when you ask them, you know, how are you going to get to net zero? The answer is, well, we're going to use offsets. And and so what are offsets? Well, it's like we were talking about nature-based solutions for removing carbon dioxide. If you can do that for $20 a ton, and I'm a corporation where for me to reduce my emissions is going to cost me, you know, $200 a ton. I'd rather buy those cheap offsets. Now, if those offsets are real, then it makes sense to do that. But if those offsets are just, you know, fraudulent, and right now that's part of the problem, those offsets are not particularly real mm-hmm. uh, because we don't have standardization. We don't have government oversight. Uh, we don't have efficient markets. So 
Well, they also might not work. I mean, well, some of them, they, they will work. The question is, how expensive are they? What, you know, what do they cost? Uh, how do you make them permanent? In these nature-based solutions, one of the big issues is, you know, you grow trees, but then there's a forest yeah, fire. Yeah, 100 years, so, maybe. Yeah, yeah, so in California, maybe 30 years. Who knows, you know? And so there are definitely issues that have to be addressed before we can depend on these offsets. But but you're right, it is accounting. And, and what it should be is not a voluntary thing. It should be that, you know, they're priced, that there's a responsibility. One way to put a price on it is just to say, okay, corporations, you're responsible for your e-liabilities. And, you know, you have to uh, sequester that carbon one way or the other. If you can do it for $20 a ton, great. If you can't, uh, you know, whatever it's going to cost, you have to pay it. And that's a way of putting a price on carbon. So you're absolutely right. And had that been done 50 years ago or 100 years ago? Yeah. Well, 100 years ago, we knew about global warming possible, but, you know, there's a big doubt. But 50 years ago, we knew. Yeah, yeah. No, we did. It's very sad. You know, had it not been an invisible, you know, colorless, odorless uh, gas, uh, you know. With a big time delay. Right, with a big time delay. Woulda, shoulda, coulda. But it it is sort of... uh, you know, a maddening because we know the solution and yet we haven't done it. We don't have the political will in this country. And this country is kind of key because, you know, Europe's already gone. Uh, You know, people worry about China and they worry about India. And it is true that China, India, and the U.S. are really the big polluters. And none of us have significant uh, incentives to reduce emissions. But, you know, if you're China and they've already put in place a government, you know, federal system, uh, it happens to be, you know, an emissions trading system where the price is like $8 a ton. So it's not really a strong incentive. Uh, You know, and India, uh, I think they're, you know, they're saying, look, U.S., you created the problem. You've done it historically. You're the biggest polluter. Uh, You go first. Uh, you know, and if I were India or China, that's what I would say as well. But to me, we all, all three of us have to recognize that it's in our collective best interest to address this problem. So it, it's a global coordination problem. I would love to be part of the nation going first and dropping our emissions down. I mean, to me, that sounds exciting. I know that a lot of people, I, I, there's a phrase that kept going running through my head as you described America's action or lack thereof, of uh, everyone wants to look like Arnold and no one wants to lift weights. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we have done a lot in this country to reduce our emissions. Now, it wasn't collective will. It was, you know, economics and, uh, you know, and, and moving our manufacturing offshore. That's what did it. Uh, we have to work together with China, with India, with Europe, with the rest of the world to, to address this problem. And that, that is what is so maddening is that, you know, the politicians, they are all focused uh, only on the U.S. and, you know, to hell with the world. Well, if every country feels that way, then we're not going to address this problem. It's just kind of sad. Well, I think also if the, if the world goes down, we're not going to build walls around this country and somehow survive. Well, yeah. No, we're, we're all suffering. 
And Cancer Alley is in the U.S. We have all these sacrifice zones already. Yeah. It's not over there. Yeah, no. And like you said, Florida is going to be underwater. And, uh, you know, the the weather has already changed. That's another thing. People don't realize. I I don't know. People are starting to wake up to the fact that the 100-year flood or the 100-year drought or the 100-year heat uh, is already here. The weather has become more chaotic. There's more energy, more water in the atmosphere. And so these events are already happening. And these these events, there's something special about 100 year. That's the one that's going to wipe you out because you're not prepared for it. It's the one that's not in the building code because it only happens every 100 years. But now it's happening every five years or every 10 years because, you know, it's now... Uh, when you hear the hundred year whatever, and it's along every different dimension, it's a statement about the magnitude. It's not a statement about the frequency anymore. These things are happening all the time. And the insurance companies recognize this because insurance is all about tail events. And so it's not as if the reinsurers haven't seen this coming. And so they've pulled back on hurricane risk, on wildfire risk on these climate-related risks that are now much greater than they used to be. And so the insurance companies are pulling back. You know, if if you're trying to get insurance for a house in, you know, the uh, urban uh, wildlife interface there, uh, you know, in in the trees in California, where it's, you know, who knows, five times more likely to burn than it used to be, uh, good luck getting insurance. The, the only way you're going to get it is through a, a state program right now that's, you know, subsidized. And, uh, you know, these programs are not going to work. Uh, ultimately, what has to happen is that we, as a society, are going to have to recognize the increased climate-related risks, the increased wildfire risk in California, the increased flood risk in, in Houston, the increased... Uh, hurricane uh, storm surge risk in Florida. And, uh, and we're going to have to harden the infrastructure and, and move to, you know, uh, cities where that infrastructure can be hardened. And people are going to have to think about, you know, managed retreat from exposed areas. This is not something we've faced in the past. And as I said, it's accelerating. You talk about sea level rise in the last uh you know, uh, 20 years, maybe it's been an inch or two on the East Coast. But, you know, in the next 10 years, it's going to be another uh, inch or two. And then the next 10 years after that, it might be three or four inches. And it's just going to be because these things take a long time. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uncertainty. By 2100, you know, the best estimate now is something like four to six feet of sea level rise. And, you know, 2100 is not that far off. My grandchildren are certainly going to be here in 2100. And it could be much worse. You know, I just, you know, they don't really understand the melting going on underneath the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. But it could be 10 feet or 12 feet. You know, the risks are on the high side, on the bad side. And, and that's just one dimension of it, you know, heat waves and hailstorms and uh, floods, you know, this is just, it's coming. It's so sad. 
And you're talking about a lot of the different manifestations of climate from the greenhouse effect. How about there's lots of other things that even if somehow we could pull out all the carbon, there's issues of overfishing, plastic extinctions uh, from habitat loss. It seems to me these are also risks that are in many ways correlated, but in many ways independent of climate. Well, yeah, they, they certainly could compound. Uh, you've got fragile ecosystems that are facing unprecedented uh, hazards. And uh, it's, you know... It's, Is that another place you're looking at, at pricing? Well, y- yes. Of things like deforestation or overfishing or... Yeah. Yes, it goes under the, uh, the term natural capital uh-huh. and uh, ecosystem services that are provided by natural capital. And yes, uh, if we don't recognize those, uh, we're just going to, you know, waste them or destroy them. So it is a more general problem. Uh, I would say in the in the context of protecting the ecosystem services from nature, carbon is probably the easiest. And it's not that easy. We haven't yet really gotten good metrics of the carbon flux out of the atmosphere into landscapes that would allow us to pay for, you know, the flux out of the atmosphere. But there's so many other services that come from nature, you know, biodiversity, clean water, uh, pollination services, ecotourism, uh, you know, you name it, uh, that, you know, we, we haven't put a price on. And we should. We should definitely uh, recognize the value of those ecosystem services and, uh, and protect them. Uh, and price them. And price them. Yeah. Now it's hard. How do you price? How do you put a price on uh, biodiversity? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what is each uh, DNA different? You know, each DNA, each species represents an adaptation of a life form to a particular environment. Uh, I think of it as, you know, an incredible work of art. I mean, just every species. And and yet we're destroying the environment that it's adapted to. And so, you know, there's no question that we're going to, you know, just do incredible damage to biodiversity. So how do you put a price on that? I don't know. But we've got to, yeah. We've got to do better than we are. Now, I'm thinking about the transition in your life. Because every now and then I look back at myself. For 40 years of my life, I thought there was never a time in my life when I didn't know about global warming, about uh, plastic pollution. But I also felt like, well, kind of like with you, I, someone must be working on this. And for me to act wouldn't really make much of a difference. And I think if the me then saw the me now, I probably would have, I don't know what I would have thought. And the me now looking at the me then was like, what were you thinking? Like, how could you just know and not, do you ever think of, how would the you of then think of the you now? Because you sound very, you don't sound like a Goldman Sachs guy. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know. Because I'm also wondering, a lot of people, I would like to see a lot of people go through the transition that you're going through. And I feel like you're not done yet. You're still learning more and still growing more. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, at this point, <laughs> it's, it's like, 
Come on, it's got to happen soon. How how long can we keep going? I think we are very close to the recognition as a society of the risk of what we've done. And when that occurs, you know, the the transition is going to speed up dramatically. We are going to put a price on it. Everyone's going to recognize, oh, my God, let's clean this mess up. And, uh, you know, then capital will flow. And hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll figure out solutions. And you mentioned all those other problems. And hopefully climate will be, become kind of a lesson. And we'll say, oh, my God, what were we doing? And we'll, we'll try the best we can to protect, you know, nature and recognize what our own role is in nature. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting, this uh, recent focus on artificial intelligence, uh, which kind of forces you to step back and, and say, you know, what is it about humans that makes us special? Uh, what is intelligence? What, you know, and a lot of people are very afraid. And I don't know, my, my view is that, you know, humans have never been rational. You know, we're, we're just <laughs> yeah. another animal, right? <laughs> you know, and we try our best. And, uh, it, you know, we created, as I say, language and all these things and markets. And uh, it, it's pretty amazing what we've done, but we're not rational. I, I have hope that, you know, the, uh, the artificial intelligence will say, whoa, 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 you guys, you're missing this thing. You're supposed to be pricing mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll do it. You know, it's, it's kind of obvious. You don't need, uh, you don't need artificial intelligence, but, but somehow the human, uh, species has missed this obvious, uh, you know, fact. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, we'll be a little bit more humble about our own intelligence going forward. I like to joke when people, I, I just guest spoke at someone's class, you know, I got this PhD in astrophysics and helped build a satellite. And so they said, uh, do you think that there's alien life out there? And I made, I answered the question somewhat, but I also added my little joke of like, I really hope to find intelligent life on earth. <laughs> yeah. They like that, the undergrads. Yeah. I think... You know, one of the big things for me, because I come to this from a, well, definitely science perspective, but also a leadership perspective, is understanding the mindsets of people resisting looking at, or, or rather not, they're not resisting looking at something from their mindset. They're holding on to something that makes a lot of sense to them. And understanding that is, understanding it in order to do something about it is a big challenge. How do we get popular support for pricing risk effectively? Because if people even if it's rationally presented to them, it makes total sense. They may still feel like, yeah, but um, I'm still going to vote for the other guy. Yeah. Cause I don't want to lose my job. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's a problem, you know, the political system and, uh, and more generally uh, I think this problem reflects social media and, uh, and the power that, you know, these algorithms have had to shape people's, you know, uh, worlds. Uh, it's just a little bit scary. And uh, bit. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and as it pertains to global warming, the problem is that we only have one really political party that's trying to solve problems. 
we have, you know, a dysfunctional uh, cult on the other side. And, you know, you ask yourself, how did that happen? And you can talk about Fox News and that business model, and it's just a business model. Or you can talk about Facebook or Twitter, and those are business models. And they're not business models that, you know, are designed to maximize human utility, whatever that is. You know, they're designed to maximize the shareholder value. Uh, and particularly when you get something like Facebook, where there's one shareholder, I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy. So I think there's a lot of reforms that we need in the capitalist system. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of obvious it's not working. And, uh, you know, I, I blame that on technology and uh, the lack of regulation of uh, social media, you know, I mean, there's a lot of problems in this country uh, that we haven't dealt with. Uh, Climate change is one. And and sadly, for most people, climate change is not uh, urgent. It's something that's far off in the distance. You know, to me, as a risk management guy, it's an urgent problem. But it's not seen that way more generally, sadly. Something you're talking, a lot of people have this, I think they have this gut feeling like, the alternative to, say, putting in these incentives is to wait a bit longer. Like, I think they feel like it's not going to happen. Like, this fear-mongering is just fear-mongering. And to me, the alternative to instituting these changes is not business as usual alone. The business as usual alone will lead to – I mean, you've talked about some of the things and, and – they can be you. You played, I think, light of what could happen. I mean, hopefully, it won't. <laughs> yeah, right. It could get out of control. But I feel like a lot of people feel like um, I don't know what they think, but they they think the alternative to acting is somehow still comfortable. Yeah, it's not comfortable. Yeah, and it's not comfortable. the The analogy people use is that you know we're heading for a cliff and our foot is still on the accelerator. I mean. We should be slamming on the brakes. And the only brake that's effective is putting a price on carbon. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty obvious. And, uh, you know, we just have to slam on the brakes. It's not an ease on the brakes scenario, you know. It could have been a while ago, yeah. Well, maybe. But, you know, as a risk management problem, you want to make sure it's under control. And, you know, uh, we would have had to act a long time ago uh, to make sure that it's under control because it's going to take so long to play out. But in any case, it's way too late for that now. Now we absolutely have to slam on the brakes. The the social cost of carbon now, the, the, um, the, the best estimate I would quote is from Resources for the Future, and, and they've estimated it at $185 a ton. So that's 10 times the incentive that we have in the U.S. I mean, and, and if you look at the IMF, they put it a different way. They think of it as a subsidy of pollution. They say, well, the right price is around, a, I think they use around $100 a ton. It, it, there's like uh, 50 gigatons of carbon, 50 billion tons produced every year that's not priced. Well, that's, you know, uh, 
five, what is that? Five trillion dollars of, uh, of subsidy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's a strong headwind if you want to decarbonize your economy. And, and if you think of it as $200 a ton, then it's, uh, you know, 10 trillion. That's just, you know, a crazy amount of subsidy. That's what we should be eliminating by pricing carbon and moving very quickly to a low carbon economy. But meanwhile, we're just, you know, like you said, it's pretty close to business as usual. Before I hit record, I said to you, sometimes the hour flies by and I realize the hour has flown by. And I feel like we're touching on something that I would love to have you back a second time, which is what the numbers would be and how to implement it. And which I feel like are whole other topics, which we haven't gotten to. And they must be things that you think about the, like the specific numbers and the specific implementation. Sure. Happy to. And and especially nature-based because those are the ones that we should be doing first. And by the way, that would be very good for nature. Yeah. Yeah. And, and our, and our personal experience of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like not just nature in the abstract, like, yeah, right. Like real nature out there it should be protected. That's where we should start. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Can we schedule a second conversation? Because I, I really want to pick up there. Sure, sure. Yeah. Just, you know, work with Sandy. I'm happy to do it. Okay, great. Thank you. And uh, well, closing off here, is there anything to close with at this point? Um, to me, something about maybe I'm very also interested on the personal side of your personal transformation because I think there's a lot of people who are a lot like you were, who I think would love to become how you are <laughs> and could use the the role model, the experience to gain from. Yeah. I mean, I did mention the story about, uh, you know, getting kind of sucked into that, what's the right price. And, uh, you know, for me, that was an intellectual journey. Um, I guess, you know, more generally, I've just always been kind of, um, I've always thought of, you know, science as being kind of my center of gravity, you know. And when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a physicist. In fact, at Stanford, I started in physics uh, then I went into human biology, <laughs> economics, you know, my kids are both scientists and they think of me as, you know, not really a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I kind of understand that, you know, and then I did, I was an academic for a couple of years, but I, I was never, that never fit me. Uh, but, uh, I would say, uh, that it's kind of that scientific, focus. And then it just, um, you know, I got passionate about the fact that, uh, you know, we're not managing the risk. And I, I, you know, I happen to have been a risk manager. I've been asked this before. Why are you, uh, you know, the only risk management person from Wall Street who, you know, got focused on climate change? And I don't know if I really am the only one, but to me, it, it sort of became a very natural Thing. If you focused on risk and you think about climate, it's like the biggest risk management, uh, you know, problem we have, and we're not addressing it. I mean, you know, it's a pull your hair out. The the world is on fire. Do something about it. You know. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, that, that's all I can say. 
Well, I appreciate it sharing this much and I look forward to next time. So Bob Litterman, thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Nice talking to you, Josh. Take care. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.